Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We chat with Hamilton mayoral candidate Keenan Loomis about voting day coming up on October the 24th. More needs to be done to help Hamilton's homeless population. If you have long COVID, odds are you may recover within a year. How many girls in Canada aspire to be the prime minister? A new study says not many. And we say hello to legendary quarterback Danny McManus, who's being added to the Ticats Wall of Honor. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, over the next three Wednesdays, we are going to be inviting a mayoral candidate onto our show to talk about the election campaign, some of the big issues facing our community. And we start off today with Keenan Loomis, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Keenan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. It's great to be with you and the people of Hamilton on this fine fall morning. How is your first election campaign going so far? Has it gone as you had expected? It is. uh, Probably better than I had expected, actually. Um, Certainly, you hope that uh, when you (laughs) you step down from your job to to run for uh, office, that uh, your message is going to resonate with people. Um, I knew that uh, Hamilton needed a change in leadership at uh, at City Hall. And as I go out there knocking on doors and, and going to events, um, I am finding that that, uh, that desire is uh, shared pervasively across the city. So it's been quite amazing to connect with so many Hamiltonians and uh, to be able to share ideas and and a lot of people are are really excited about uh, what we have to offer. Should you be the one to win the day on October 24th, what are your top three priorities? What's at the top of the hit list for you? The very first one would be working on bringing truth, trust, and transparency back to City Hall. We know that we have a culture problem in uh, that building. Uh, it has been, um, you know, manifesting for the last uh, number of years, uh, perhaps decades, um, and certainly over this term of council. And with the facts that we're going to have at least seven new faces around that table, we need to start very quickly to build new relationships and ensure that we are off on the right foot and that uh, the politics of yesterday are not repeated uh, going forward. Um, and that will allow us to address the, the, the challenges that we have in this community and, and embrace um, as well the, the opportunities. So, you know, second would be making sure that we address uh, affordable housing. Um, housing in, in, in particular, um, you know, we announced a plan to build 50,000 new homes in Hamilton over the next 10 years, but a certain element of that is affordable housing. Um, a certain element of that is is the type of supportive housing that the folks on our streets uh, need uh, to be able to move off the streets into, uh, you know, a, a dignified uh, places with uh, roofs over their heads. This is what uh, people across the city are asking for uh, from their leadership as solutions to uh, to those uh, real uh, intransigent, intransigent issues. And then the second thing, uh, third thing um, is I will be sitting down with Metrolinx right away to talk about uh, the LRT construction um, and uh, make sure that we get going on that. Um, people are sick and tired of hearing about LRT. We need to get on with construction and uh, addressing so many of our other infrastructure challenges. If you have a question for Hamilton mayoral candidates, uh, Keenan Loomis, you can call in at 7.50 this morning. That's in nine minutes, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on 
on your cell phone. You can also email your question to me, rick at 900chml.com. On the trust and transparency at City Hall, how do you do that? How do you repair that? What what uh, what is going to be the measurables that you can say, okay, we've achieved now some trust and true transparency at City Hall? Well, you know, the culture of an organization isn't changed overnight, but it certainly helps that you have seven new voices out of the 16 that control the organization that are uh, on the board of directors that are is the corporation of the city of Hamilton. So we immediately have uh, a, a really great opportunity, perhaps the best opportunity Hamilton has ever had uh, to bring change to City Hall. And um, then it starts by building those relationships. Um, you know, again, uh, a lot of new faces around the table uh, that, uh, you know, we're going to have to get to know each other, uh, understand the issues, understand where there's consensus. And that's how I want to lead is by consensus. So I think what you will see is, um, you know, we will not be wasting time uh, dealing with bullies and and, uh, and personal, uh, you know, political sniping. Um, we will be focused on the issues. And so, you know, things might be uh, a little, well, my hope is uh, a little boring around that council table. You, you won't see the, the the temperature um, turned up as, as high as it has been. You know, we'll be focused on the actual issues, and um, and you know, I think that uh, as we go through with with votes um, on council, you'll you'll start to see a lot more consensus. And it, even if we don't all agree, uh, at least we're able to respect each other as we uh, as we you know move through the agenda of the city. But I think then that will trickle down through the rest of the organization. Right now, we have. Um, uh, it's hard for us to retain the talent that we have in City Hall. It's a difficult place to, to work. And I think that, you know, we, there's a lot of vacancies within that building, um, a lot of uh, really great talent that are leaving for other jurisdictions or for the private sector. So I think that you'll find that Hamilton will once again be, uh, the city of Hamilton will be a great uh, place to work, a great place to be able to contribute to your community. So you'll start to see those staffing challenges be alleviated as well. We have another uh, 90 seconds in this segment, at least, with Keenan Loomis, Hamilton mayoral candidates. If you want to call in with a question that we'll get to in our following segment, segment 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell phone or send me an email rick at 900chml.com in 30 seconds you know you can go a little bit longer if you want uh urban sprawl a huge issue in this community would you stick with what this current council has adopted or would you want to reverse council's decision and spread the wings out a little bit more our plan to build 50,000 homes in Hamilton over the next 10 years is within the current urban boundary. I think that it's uh, it's great that people in this community have uh, finally taken notice as to how we're, we're growing as a community. Uh, it's important to protect farmland. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that we have enough opportunities within the current urban boundaries, uh, in the downtown, um, along the, the transportation corridors that we need to be building out, uh, not just Beeline LRT, but the other for as well. Uh, vacant parking lots, um, just underutilized land throughout the city and gentle density that can be brought throughout the city as well through uh, the incentivization of things like secondary suites and in-law suites. Um, all of that can be accomplished within the current urban boundary and I do not foresee a need to be able to expand it at this point in time. All right, lots more to come here with Keenan Lewis, who's going to stick around for a few more minutes. If you have a question for the Hamilton mayoral hopeful, you can call us now at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell, or send me an email, rick at 900 
chml.com and we'll ask the question to Mr. Loomis. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Advanced polls will happen this Friday and Saturday. And again, on October 14th, 15th, there are a number of candidates that are vying for the mayor's chair. Bob Bertina, Ejaz Butt, Jim Davis, Paul Frum, Andrea Horvath, Solomon Ikiwu, Hermes Ishaye, and Michael Pattison, and our guest this morning, one of three mayoral candidate town halls that we're conducting on Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML, Keenan Loomis, who joins us once again here on the show. Keenan got an email from Cassie, who writes, I'm wondering what Keenan's thoughts are on Andrea's recent debate comments questioning his experience and him not living in Hamilton long enough to be mayor. Thanks, Cassie. Your response? <laughs> well, um, Certainly, I have received a lot of comments from people coming up to me saying that they saw that and they uh, they felt targeted by that themselves. Um, not everybody here was, was born and raised in Hamilton. Um, Hamilton is a great place to live. And a lot of people have uh, immigrated here either from overseas or from within the, the GTHA. And, um, you know, I, I think that this is just underscores, again, the need for, for change at City Hall. Um, we can't continue to elect career uh, recycled politicians um, because we will just get more of the same. And we see, you know, what uh, their initial instincts are, which is to attack, to attack, to attack. Um, and it's not just, uh, of course, uh, you know, um, uh, Andrea, what we're seeing right now with uh, uh, with Bob is um, going to really dark places. And so we're just focused on on running a positive campaign, um, one that will bring everybody in um, and inspire everybody because we uh, are aiming higher for Hamilton as a candidacy. We have a listener who has called into the program, Sam, calling in to Good Morning Hamilton. Hello, Sam. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. You have a question. Morning, for, Sam. You have a question for Keenan. Go ahead. Yes, I do. Um, so LRT is going to take seven years to build from beginning to end. I'm wondering how are you going to handle the traffic problems that are going to go along with it, since this city is in a traffic mess already. The link and the Red Hill are woefully too small already. Um, I know it's joint between the city and the province that, but there's nothing going to be done in the future to fix anything. And how are you going to handle seven years of LRT construction? All right. Thanks, Sam. Keenan? Well, the, the the hope and the desire is that it's not uh, seven years of, uh, of construction. Um, it's going to be uh, no more than five if we manage this correctly. And it's important to have somebody within the mayor's office that uh, every single morning is coordinating with the construction company and uh, seeing what uh, what progress we need to be making uh, at that point in time uh, for that day um, and uh, doing it again the next day, making sure that they are uh, remaining on time and on budget. Obviously, construction is going to be inconvenient to us. Um, it will be uh, only in certain stages. So, you know, not uh, not all of the uh, entire corridor is going to be worked on at any one time. So it'll be uh, various parts of the of the city where we are going to need to devise plans uh, to move around. Um, and it's going to require communication, um, communication uh, to the drivers, communication to the residents that are being impacted by construction at that time and to the businesses as well. And we're all going to have to adapt. But uh, one of the things I have said is that, you know, 
the the inconveniences of construction are real, but they're not the reason not to do this. They're not the reason to not, um, you know, allow this $3.4 billion infrastructure project to go forward. And when we get to uh, the finish line, um, like they have in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, um, I, I promise you, everybody will say they were for it all along because of how transformative it's going to be for our city. Sam, appreciate the question, and uh, thanks for chiming in here on Good Morning Hamilton. We're in discussion with Keenan Loomis, Hamilton mayoral candidate, the first of three that we'll be doing on the show. Bob Bertina will join us next week, followed by Andrea Horvath. Uh, we heard earlier this morning on the show data from the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team that shows eight of the ten homeless people who died over the last nine months in this city died of an overdose, seven of them in shelters. What would you do to address this issue? Well, there's no doubt that we have to um, dedicate more resources to dealing with the root causes of our our houseless uh, um, pro, uh, problem in downtown. Um, addictions, mental health supports are the most most important aspects to this. And, and then, uh, of course, having uh, a, a place where uh, these people can have a roof over their head, either transitionally or uh, permanently as well. I do believe in the, uh, the, the evidence behind safe supply. I do believe in the evidence behind um, having safe injection uh, sites as well. It does save lives. Um, one of the biggest issues is that um, right now uh, when people are getting their drugs, they're getting them off the, the street and there's just no way of knowing uh, what is uh, in that uh, that substance. And so there are ways in which we can uh, definitely reduce the harm to people on our streets. There's a lot of incredible people in the city that are working on that. I have uh, you know, been able to meet with a lot of people, get a good understanding, a much better understanding of this issue and some of the things that we need to be putting in place to uh, help reduce the harm to the folks on our streets. And really quick, we got to go here, but we had a phone caller who didn't want to go on the air, but wanted to ask you your community town hall meetings that have mm-hmm. been rolling over the last number of weeks. Will there be one in downtown Hamilton? Yes, there will be one in downtown Hamilton. It's going to be at Afrolicious. Um, if you go to our votelumis.ca website, you can see our town hall tour. Um, one of the things we have found is uh, as we travel across the city, that people do not feel heard by or, or connected to their city hall. So I have uh, promised to do a town hall in every single ward across the city in my first year in conjunction with uh, that ward's counselor and to uh, show our, our dedication, our commitment, to that uh, that promise. We have done a town hall tour uh, across Hamilton in the lead up to the election. Uh, last week we were in Ancaster. We've been in Binbrook. We've been in Stony Creek. Uh, this week on Thursday night at six o'clock, we're going to be in Dundas at Cafe Domestique. And then we have a couple uh, stops along the way, Waterdown, uh, the mountain, and the uh, and downtown. And I don't quite have the schedule <laughs> right in front of me at this <laughs> moment, um, but you can go to votelumis.ca and see, uh, uh, go to a events and see where we're going to be next. But uh, Cafe Domestique at six o'clock on uh, Thursday night is our next town hall. Looking forward to being in Dundas. All right, Keenan, thanks for the discussion this morning. Good luck the rest of the way, and we'll talk to you down the road. All right. Thanks, Rick. Keenan Loomis, Hamilton mayoral candidate, so one of three that we'll be talking to over the next few weeks. Of course, Election Day is October 24th. CHML will be broadcasting live on Election Night at Hamilton City Hall with all the up-to-date results. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A research team 
has been tracking the mortality data for Hamilton's homeless population, and the numbers don't look good. Second set of data from the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team shows that the average age at the time of death for a homeless person in the city is 43. Life expectancy in this city is 81. Dr. Claire Bodkin is a researcher at McMaster University and part of this uh, data unload and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Bodkin, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm, I'm good, uh, although these numbers are not good at all. I mean, eight deaths from overdoses among homeless residents since last December, seven of those eight in a shelter. Um, talk about this data and, and what it means and what we should be doing. Yeah, so so just to um, to clarify, the average age that the deaths of people, it was 43 years, but that isn't the life expectancy for people, right? That's just of the, the 10 people who died. On average, they were 43 right. years old when they died. In terms of the data this time around, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, obviously we're seeing that overdose death continues to be a big driver of of death in this group of people. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but the primary one is really our, our toxic drug supply. So we know that people are unable to know what it is exactly that they're using. And that uh, as a result of, of that, it means that they are at very high risk of dying from overdose. And this is across, you know, we're seeing this across the Canadian population. I think it's particularly um, high, uh, cause of death in the group of people that that don't have stable housing. However, we have a safe consumption site in Hamilton. Um, are overdose prevention services working in this city, or do they have to be tweaked? I think they really need to be expanded. You know, when we think about the fact that we're a city of well over five hundred thousand people, and we've got one supervised consumption site that's open partial hours in one location downtown. Uh, that's just not enough. And we know that when the city of Hamilton's public health team did a comprehensive assessment of what was needed in the city, that they identified that we needed at least two, if not more, consumption and treatment sites. But we also need to make sure that services are available where people are, right? So that includes things like embedding overdose prevention sites in in shelters. I'm really um, thrilled to see the YWCA working in partnership with HamSmart and Keeping Six to open a safer drug use space in their uh, overnight emergency program for women who are homeless and non-binary people who are homeless, Carol Ann's place. Those are the sorts of things that we need to see while we're pushing for that change in in drug policy at the federal level. There has been a lot of talk of a second safe consumption site or safe injection site, whatever you want to call it. What is the status of that? Yeah, so the application is in. Uh, That project's being led by the AIDS Network of Hamilton. The Ontario government is requesting further letters of support, which were not actually a condition that was in place when they first applied. I think that because of the stigma facing people who use drugs, there's an incredible number of hoops that we need to go through to establish this life-saving service. Something that, you know, if I wanted to open a family doctor's office in the same location, which is also healthcare, I just wouldn't have to go through. We haven't really, and we're in discussion with Dr. Claire Bonkin, researcher at McMaster University, we haven't really heard about, uh, we've heard about homelessness and affordable housing during this election campaign. We haven't really heard about, uh, you know, overdose deaths, uh, how this is impacting the homeless population in this community. Is that surprising? 
I mean, so we have in Ward 3 heard a pretty uh, ferocious debate, and I would say the Ward 3 election has has come down almost to a referendum on the second consumption and treatment site in their um, in their neighborhood. But in terms of a real debate around what are we doing for the health and well-being of people who use drugs, no, that really has not made it into the into the conversation, which I think is is a real loss. You know, moving beyond people who are homeless, lots of people use drugs and lots of people are dying. We know that it's not just people who are deprived of housing who are dying and the numbers get worse every year. You know, something like six people are dying every day um, from the contaminated drug supply in Canada. And we just have not seen the action on that that's required. Well, let's uh, hope that action comes very soon because uh, people, as we know, uh, are dying of of, uh, overdoses uh, on a daily basis. Dr. Bodkin, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. That's Dr. Claire Bodkin, researcher at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New research out of McMaster University. This should interest anyone who has contracted COVID-19 or has had a colleague, a friend, a family member contract COVID-19. New research suggests that most people who suffer from long covid recover within a year. The study has been published in the European Respiratory Journal. And joining us now to discuss this is Dr. Manali Mukherjee, an assistant professor in the Division of Respirology, the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Mukherjee, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. How did you go about gathering this information and surmising that long COVID subsides within 12 months? Well, um, let me just uh, correct that phrase uh, and take the liberty of doing that. Um, long COVID does not subside within 12 months. Um, the way the study was designed, we took any pa- patient or any individual who has had COVID. So it was it was a confirmation on a PCR test who has had COVID. And then over 12 months, we looked to see whether their symptoms subside and whether that was associated with some biomarkers that can be tested in the blood. So what we saw that many of them had symptoms at three and six months, which we now know are symptoms of long COVID. So many of them had symptoms of long COVID at three and six months, and majority of them, their symptoms subsided by 12 months, along with their biomarkers in the blood, specifically some inflammatory biomarkers like cytokines and some autoantibodies, which are like antibodies that can recognize self-structure. So about 75% of the patients, uh, their symptoms got better, or rather they never contracted long COVID per se by definition. And 25 to 30% still had persistent symptoms at 12 months with evidence of inflammatory markers and autoantibodies in their blood, um, characteristically defining the long COVID population that uh, we are getting so aware of and who are suffering. So is there a difference in those who continue to suffer after 12 months? Is there something that they have that the others didn't? Yes, they have the presence of certain inflammatory markers that remain high in their blood and presence of autoantibodies, which are antibodies against um, certain self-structures that have been associated with uh, elsewhere, associated with development of rheumatological complications or autoimmune diseases. So there are two or three specific autoantibodies that we could see that were still present, persistent in their blood at 12 months after 
contracting COVID. And did these individuals realize that they had an autoimmune deficiency or an illness? No. So um, the presence of autoantibodies does not essentially mean there is an autoimmune disease. But the presence of autoantibodies indicate that there could be a trajectory towards getting an autoimmune disease if it presents itself clinically. So these individuals, obviously, I being one of them, we know that we are not operating at the best of our health and there is something definitely wrong going. Like there is something that is causing the ill health after uh, after COVID. And there's so much research going everywhere globally trying to find the answer. This study just gives in a possible clue that there could be um, autoantibodies and a possible autoimmune-related pathology underlying it. So these individuals should be aware of this at around 12 months or more if their symptoms are still persisting to um, get it uh, followed up uh, and and, and, and seeking out medical help to make sure that it does not move towards a a more uh, severe disease. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Manali Mukherjee, an assistant professor at McMaster University who is studying the uh, long COVID. Uh, could this research potentially lead to new tr- uh, a new treatment method? Is that the end goal? Um, yes, that is the end goal. So currently in Hamilton from McMaster University with uh, multiple investigators at McMaster, including Dr. Costa Stelios, who is a clinical rheumatologist, and Dr. Sarah Svenningson, who is an imaging, lung imaging scientist, we are uh, looking at uh, how if these patients will develop uh, rheumatological complications and, and disease and trying to figure out if there could be an, an early intervention and an early medical intervention that could possibly um, stop the progression. Um, so that is the end goal. But obviously, there is much more funding required and support required to have that kind of a trial, uh, randomized control trial that will uh, really help us tease out the answer for a possible medical treatment. We only got about a minute. I know you are recruiting participants in these continuing uh, long COVID, post-acute COVID syndrome studies. Where can people volunteer? Um, they they have to come to St. Joseph's Hospital at 50 Charlton Avenue East. That's where my lab is based. That's where the study visits are based. Um, they can find out more. They can write to me. They can find me on the McMaster website and uh, write to me directly, and I'll happily refer them to my study coordinator. This is great stuff. Awesome research being done here in Hamilton, and it's being led in large part by Dr. Manali Mukherjee at McMaster University. Thank you for your time today. Best of luck going forward with these studies. Thank you, Rick. Dr. Manali Mukherjee, Assistant Professor in the Division of Respiratory, uh, Respirology, pardon me, Department of Medicine at McMaster University. It is a really an interesting story on long COVID and how some of these individuals are faced with these unknown autoimmune illnesses, which is compounding the problem, as you just heard. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. According to a report from Plan International, not sure we should be too surprised at these percentages, although disappointing to see it so low. 9% of girls in this country aspire, dream to be one day the Prime Minister of Canada. 9%. Why is it so low and what needs to be done to change and elevate that percentage. Sadia Hamdani is the Director of Gender Equality and Inclusion at Plan International Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sadia, good morning. How are you today? 
Good morning, Rick. I'm fine. Thank you. Boy, Great that, morning. That 9%, I, I would not have guessed it was going to be that low. Yeah. So, Rick, I mean, I should, I should say every year on the 11th of October, the International Day of the Girl is observed globally. And this year, we're shining a spotlight on the political ambitions and participation of girls globally and in Canada. And as you say, the research is startling. The findings are absolutely startling. Why does this happen? I think before we look at that, there are a couple of things that we should know. Globally, and that includes Canadian girls, 97% say that politics is important. Political decisions are important and participation is important. Yet only half of them globally and only 38% in Canada feel that their people in their communities and in their lives feel that it is appropriate for girls to engage in political activities just because of their age and gender, right? At the same time, they also are a little sort of you know, un- unhappy with with the way they are perceived by political leaders. Two in five in Canada think that politicians would not listen to them or hold their best interest at heart. That's a that's a large number of girls who feel disgruntled. Right? It speaks to the exclusion they face consistently. Um, another another thing that girls globally and in Canada, nearly half of them told us that women in politics face abuse, intimidation, and harassment. And this really undermines their ambition of coming into the space. But another very big finding is that many half of them feel that they are not adequately equipped with the skills and the knowledge required to hold their politicians to account. Now, all this tells us a lot. Um, I mean, we can just go on and on about the findings, but you you spoke to a very important thing over here. How can this be changed? What are the factors that give us this kind of data, right? First of all, continued entrenched gender-based discrimination, uh, misogyny, clear and sort of blatant uh, sexism is, is rampant all over the world, including in Canada, You know, one in five girls told us globally that they have been personally discouraged from going into political activities, right? All this, apart from the gender-based sort of discrimination that is always there underlying everything, they just don't think it's safe, right? And, And, you know, a lot needs to be done about that feeling of being engaged meaningfully and being safe. So these are some of the factors that that hold girls back and their ambitions to ever enter the political space. When it comes to those individuals who are acting as mentors, as examples, women in politics who have achieved some great success, you know, I think of Krista Freeland, a former health minister mm-hmm. here in Ontario, uh, Christine Elliott. There are examples of women achieving uh, greatness, if you will, for lack of a better term, in the political mm-hmm. sphere. Is that not encouraging young women to say, hey, I can do that too? Absolutely. And any, any woman in politics anywhere in the world is a role model. However, a couple of things need to happen. You know, 
everywhere at all levels of governance, right? Be it local, national, international, provincial, what have you, and, and across political parties, proactively space needs to be created to engage girls in a meaningful way and not a tokenistic way. That is critical. In addition to the role models we speak to, another thing is creating access and opportunities for civic engagement, education, and pathways which are inclusive. But above all of this, you know, girls tell us there needs to be zero tolerance for any kind of intimidation, abuse, or harassment that goes on globally against women in politics, whether you know, it could be on how they look or what they say. It's it's a very, very steep climb. So, you know, these are some of the things that need to happen along with the role models who are critical to really, really, uh, you know, getting girls excited and bringing them on board. We have a couple more minutes with Sadia Hamdani, the Director of Gender Equality and Inclusion at Plan International Canada, which has released a report that shows only 9% of girls in this country aspire to be the Prime Minister. It takes it takes a village to get someone to be at that level, and the mm-hmm. starting point for many politicians, if you will, is municipal politics, city councils, maybe a school board trustee, and we're seeing many women in that capacity, uh, is, is the... Is the starting point the right spot for women in politics? I mean, every level um, and, and without exception. They need to be starting at a very, very young age so that they feel the confidence, the skills, the, the knowledge that is required to engage meaningfully, right? On the one hand, and on the other hand, the space that needs to be created. But, you know, Rick, we all have a role to play in this. I mean, that's that's at the institutionalized level, right? What can you and I do as, as adults in the lives of girls, right? Many things. So we invite all Canadians across the country to join us in promoting girls' civic participation and political engagement. So we would love for everybody to visit plancanada.ca, Day of the Girl, do read the report and its recommendations. It's an eye-opener, right? Also engage in the online conversation that we're holding. It can be on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, and LinkedIn at Plan Canada. And also, there's a fun activity which I love, and I'm definitely going to do that. Give a message to your younger self, right? To inspire girls and young women, women to see themselves as political actors down the road. A lot of us have a role to play in really, really inspiring girls. It, it is, starts at home. Yes, right? absolutely. It's a great message, and you can also uh, go to uh, hashtag Equal Power Now, hashtag mm-hmm. Day of the Girl, and continue this conversation. Sadia, really appreciate our conversation this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Sadia Hamdani is the Director of Gender Equality and Inclusion at Plan International Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up tomorrow night, big event at Carmen's Banquet Center and on Friday night at Tim Hortons Field as the Tiger Cats host the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Hall of Fame quarterback Danny McManus will be added to the Ticats Wall of Honor. It's going to be an exceptional couple of evenings. 
And who better to join us to talk about it is the man himself, D-Mac. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Doing good, buddy. Thank you very much for having me. Danny is not only a former Ticats uh, legendary quarterback, Canadian Football Hall of Fame member, currently the assistant GM of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who are having another fantastic season here in 2022. We had Darren Flutie on the show yesterday, and here's what he had to say amongst many things about you. We felt very good about our passing game, about what we were going to do that day. And I remember getting a lot of balls thrown to me through about two and a half quarters, three quarters. And then Danny pumped on the brakes, throwing the ball to me because he didn't want to give up the MVP. So he's talking about the 99 Grey Cup, and you were feeding him like a little baby all through three quarters and then apparently stopped. Are, are you going to take that from Flutes? <laughs> but he is accurate. I did. I, uh, <laughs> we were talking about it on the sidelines, and that's when I started feeding more yelling because Mike was saying, uh, you know, there's a chance I can get the Canadian MVP. Can you start throwing to me and stop throwing to Darren? So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's funny. I mean, it, that's the type of stuff that we did as as uh, players and being a part of the Ticat organization is uh, just out there having fun. I mean, enjoying it no matter what the situation is in the game. We just uh, went out there and, and played for each other and, just, and had fun about it. I mean, even when we get together uh, this weekend, there will be very few stories about what happened on the field. It's going to be all the stories, what happened in the locker room, at training camp. On, on the road, uh, those are the things that you remember, and uh, you know it's great to be able to call all my former teammates. You know, have be able to call them great friends as well. Well, one of those stories from inside the locker room that Darren shared with us yesterday was Coach Ron Lancaster's poem, in which you continuously got Darren in trouble about. Yeah, I mean Darren changed a few letters uh, <laughs> on the poem, uh, so I always kept reminding Ronnie that that was Darren who changed the. The, the title of it, and <laughs> it just, I mean, Ron would put things out there, and, you know, when, when he put it out there, he really meant for it to be uh, for the whole team and for some guys to look at it and get some inspiration, and, and Darren did it first, but then, as anything, it, it's free game to whatever you put out there that people can make fun of, and, and uh, Coach Lancaster understood that, and he got a chuckle out of it once he saw that the, the name of the poem had been changed. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Danny McManus, former Ticats quarterback, Canadian Football Hall of Famer, assistant GM with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, is going to be honored tomorrow night at Carmen's Banquet Center and will be added to the Ticats Wall of Honor on Friday night as the Cats host Saskatchewan. You can get your tickets to the dinner tomorrow night. They're $125, available at wallofhonor.square.site. Danny, you were the last quarterback to lead the Tiger Cats to a Grey Cup championship in 1999. Does it feel like 23 years ago or does it feel more like yesterday uh in, in my mind it feels like yesterday but my body definitely feels like it was 23 <laughs> years ago uh, uh <laughs> but yeah it's it's hard to believe i mean there's been some great uh, football teams in those past 23 years that, that have gone on to win championships and some great teams that just fall a little bit short uh the the cats have have been one of those ball clubs and uh the the group is there and i think coach steiny is is doing a good job with it. It's just, you know, it, it's hard to win in the CFL. And it's hard to win consistently. And uh, each day we grinded here at Winnipeg, and, and we've been having some success here lately. Uh, but it, it's tough every day to, to, to get in there and try to be just a little bit better. Uh, but it, it's hard to believe it's been 23 years since the last Great Cup champion at, at Hamilton. And, and hopefully it comes sometime soon. I mean, uh, we just have to wait and see what, what what happens with that. The ball has to bounce your way, and you got to get lucky at some times. And 
and uh, at the end of the season, look up at the scoreboard and see if you have more points than the other team. Got about a minute. What is what does this induction into the Ticats Wall of Honor mean to you? Uh, it, 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 Rick, really, it's a, it's a reflection of all my teammates. Um, I've never never been a person to stand out in front and, and take uh, the glory and stuff like that. I've always been a team person, and, and it's a reflection of all the guys that I've had the opportunity to play football with that have supported me on and off the field, uh, that have given you know their blood, sweat, and tears to make the Ticats successful. And uh, each of those guys uh, uh, are, are very important to me, and I thank each and every one of them. And so uh, with my name going up on the wall, it's not just my name. It's uh, all the guys that I play with, all the teammates that have ever laced up the, the, the cleats with me and to go out there and wear the black and gold. I think that is uh, what is most important to me, and that's what I like to reflect on it as, is that being around just a great group of individuals on and off the field, support staff from Doc Levy to Puskis to the guys in the front office uh, all the way through from ticketing, uh, marketing, all those, everybody, just the support that we ever give my, me during my time as being a Hamilton Tiger Cat to support me on and off the field. Well, I know fans will agree that you were one of the best on the field and certainly one of the best off the field doing so many amazing things with the Children's Hospital here in Hamilton and so many other events that you were supportive of. And we really appreciate your time this morning. Congratulations on this well-deserved honor. Thanks for joining us and uh, enjoy the uh, game this weekend. I appreciate it, Rick. Thank you, buddy. That's Danny McManus, former Ticats QB, Canadian Football Hall of Famer, now an assistant GM with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.